Good morning, church. Uh, Pastor Adrian here. Um, I hope that you are well and safe and that uh, in this trying time that you are able to see God's hand of love and protection in your life uh, and that you're claiming his promises uh, at this very unique time in our lives, in our history. Um, Very quickly, an announcement here. We've started our Tuesday prayer meetings here in Mount Pleasant. We are doing them at 5 o'clock on Tuesday evenings. Uh, The information to join either by phone or by internet, is on our website. If you need any information or you have any questions about that, please uh, contact me. Um, And so we hope that you can join uh, this coming Tuesday at 5. Let's get right into our message here. We are finishing the last plague in Revelation. Uh, We've been going through a series here in Revelation 15 and 16 on the seven last plagues. And so here we finish uh, the last plague. It's the plagues, uh, the plague of the earthquake and the hail. And so we will look at that now. I will read Revelation chapter 16, verses 17 through 21. And it reads, The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were noises and thunderings and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, such a mighty and great earthquake as had not occurred since men were on the earth. Now the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and great Babylon was remembered before God, to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Then every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. A great hail from heaven fell upon men, each hailstone about the weight of a talent. Men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, since the plague was exceedingly great. Let's pray. God in heaven, I ask and pray, Lord, that you would guide us as we uh, journey through these plagues and as we finish now here with the seventh. uh, Please open up this passage to us. Help us to understand what it means. Please guide me with your Holy Spirit. And in the midst of this uh, passage, even this passage, may we see our Savior plain and clear. May your Holy Spirit again guide, we ask and pray in Christ's name. Amen. As we uh, we finish our series here in uh, Revelation for the plagues, we have come to what the Bible calls uh, a plague that was exceedingly great. Uh, this plague was was catastrophic. This plague is is the end of all um, all plagues. It's it's the end all of the battle. Uh, between good and evil. So this really wraps up the plagues uh, with a bang, if you will. And so we come to a place here where we see that God is bringing things to an end. We even see that theme here in this last plague with the words, it is done. And we see something happening here that we could only imagine in our minds what it would really be like 
for us to see this happening. We have hail coming from heaven. And we have an earthquake from beneath that is dividing the city. And it is a great earthquake, the Bible says, that is so great that nothing like it has ever been experienced by mankind on planet earth. It, it is the greatest earth. It's the mother of all earthquakes. And then we also read that there's this great hail that is the weight of a talent. Now, a talent in ancient times, some commentators differ about the weight of, of, this, of, of what a talent actually is. Some say it was somewhere around 50 pounds. Some say it was closer to 100 pounds. So you could imagine somewhere in the middle that these hailstones, if you can imagine, falling from heaven about 75 pounds or so, huge, enormous hailstones. Where can you run and hide for such, from such a thing? If you were to ever escape them, you would probably have to hide deep within the earth. But you can't go there because it's quaking. The worst earthquake to ever hit the earth. So there's this great pressure that is being sent upon the earth. Pressure from heaven and pressure from beneath. That is so great. This pressure is so great that it is causing a people to respond in different ways. And, and what is truly deep down in their hearts is coming out like a grape that is being squeezed. You see the juice come out from the very center of that grape. And that's what's happening here. That's this pressure that is coming upon the earth. And it causes every person either to do two things. They either worship God, they exalt God, they cling to Him, or they blaspheme the name of God. And that's one of the purposes of the plagues here in Revelation. It reveals each person's true character. And as we read here in verse 17, <clears throat> where there's the angel who pours out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice, presumably this loud voice is God, it comes out of the temple in heaven. Once again, we see activ activity in the heavenly sanctuary. It comes out and it comes from the throne of God saying, it is is done. Now this phrase echoes John chapter 19 and verse 30 back in the Gospels when Jesus was dying on the cross just before he died he said it is finished. When he was just getting ready to die, he realized in, that he had hung on the cross by faith, that he had lived the perfect life uh, that God had sent him to live. He did the will of the Father. He showed God's character. And, and at that time, he was being the atonement for sin. And he realized that it was success, that it was a success, that what he had done, that he um, had accomplished his mission here on earth. And so he says, it is finished just before he died. And then three days later, he rose. And so there's another mission that is being accomplished here in Revelation chapter 16. These words of God from the temple during the last plague is announcing the end of the war between heaven and hell.
and the end of all temptation and misery caused by the enemies of God, all of that is over. And once the great controversy is all over, the saints will look back at their own experience. And they they look back at the experience of Jesus on the cross. And they realize that what they had to go through does not compare with what their Savior had to endure to save them. You see, when God says here, it is done, there's, he's really saying here that the suffering of my people is over. The, the anguish, the persecution, the, the temptation, everything that they have to endure, not just at this time here during the seven last plagues, but everything that they have to endure throughout their entire life that is a result of sin and rebellion and disobedience and the work of Satan and even our own mistakes. He's saying all of that is finished. Everything that they endure is finished. But when you hone in here to Revelation chapter 16, uh, God is talking also about the persecution that God's people are experiencing by their enemies. And so there's a connection between God's people and their Savior and, and what he endured there on the cross and what they have to endure at the end of time. So in a small way, they taste just in a very minute, uh, microscopic measure, if you will, the sufferings of Christ on the cross. And so they do this willingly. We see in the book of Revelation that there are many who are persecuted for the name of Christ and that when they are killed or they are imprisoned or they are persecuted, it is not actually a failure, but it's a victory. It's a joy for them to suffer for their Redeemer. They do it uh, joyfully. And so they know that there is a crown that is waiting for them when everything is finished and when everything is over. And so God announces this, that it has come to an end, all of this experience that, that uh, the, the saints have to go through. He's saying it is done here. He is, he is announcing the total end of sin and suffering and the trial of his people. He is announcing the glorious beginning of his everlasting kingdom. It is done means there is a change of condition. There is a change of reality. There is a change of the world and the universe as we know and see it. Now God says they will see what I see. They will be where I am. And everything will be as I desire it to be. A joyous, perfect heavenly union between the saints and their God from this time forward. And as they come into this new experience, as they transition into this new experience, they will look back at what they went through and look back at what their Savior went through. And they will say, you know, those plagues were really bad. You know, those moments in my life where uh, it just seemed unbearable, that, that was really bad. And I want to thank God that he got me through it. 
But they will also look back at the experience of Christ and they will say, wow, that what I went through doesn't even compare with what Jesus went through. I I can't even imagine if this is just a small taste of what he went through. His sacrifice was the highest price that anyone ever paid to save the human race. And so they will recognize this and it will cause this this rejoicing. It will cause this, uh, from their heart of love, it will cause this gratitude that will ring out throughout all, re- all eternity as they are connected by their sufferings together, God and his people. But before all this must all this comes before the end comes and and eternity comes the trials must come first and the judgment of evil must come first these must be addressed and dealt with before heaven can be heaven sin has to be dealt with before we can enjoy peace for all eternity and that's what god does in these next few verses after the earthquake comes and there's these thunderings and lightnings and noises the city is divided into three parts it's actually caused by the earthquake it's like as if the earth is splitting because of the earthquake and as a result it divides this great city into three parts Now, why does the Bible say that the great city, which is Babylon, is divided into three parts? Well, we can look at a few scriptures here to kind of uh, to bring some light onto the subject. We read back in Ezekiel chapter five, verses 12 through 13. And God is telling Ezekiel to do some very strange things in Ezekiel chapter five. Uh, But basically what he's saying is that Israel, who has gone apostate, is going to be divided into three parts. And this is a result of their rebellion against God. They were divided up three ways. In Revelation chapter 12 and verse 4, it tells us that the dragon, who represents Satan, that he actually drew a third, one-third of the angels from heaven he actually the bible says it was the stars of heaven but revelation chapter 1 helps us to understand that that means angels so he 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 drew down a third of the angels from heaven and they actually followed after satan so these texts they they help us to understand that dividing up into three parts has a particular significance for those who once followed God but have gone astray. We have to notice here that the three major enemies of God in Revelation, that is Satan, the beast, and the false prophet, all followed God or claimed to follow God at some point. As we know, Satan was good before he was evil. He was on the mountain of God. Both the books of Isaiah and Ezekiel, Isaiah uh, chapter 14 and Ezekiel chapter 28, they tell us that 
Satan was created good. There was, there was no error. There was no problem. But he allowed uh, pride to develop in his heart because of his beauty. And, and he began to become Lucifer or he began to become uh, Satan. He began to become the enemy of God. And so he walked out of the mountain of God and became a rival of God. The beast or papacy came out of true Christianity and over time it went astray. So the early church immediately after the time of Christ and immediately after the time of the apostles, uh, they were good and well uh, in God's eyes and they did their best to follow the scriptures and the example of Christ. But somehow they began to stray from the word of God. They began to stray from the path that God had for them and they became apostate as they allowed paganism and worldly influences to come into the church and develop into something that God never intended it to be. So it used to be, the beast used to be um, true Christianity. And then the false prophet also, he comes out of reformed biblical Protestantism which also goes astray, started very well. Again, they had a foundation in the scriptures, but slowly they went astray. So dividing up the great city as a judgment against apostate powers. It is a judgment especially against those who knew the truth or walked with God at some point and then walked away. It is a judgment against the confusion of Babylon, which mixes truth with error, right with wrong, and the counterfeit instead of the genuine. God judges rebellion, but he, is, he particularly dislikes those who deceive others by claiming to be good, by claiming to be on the side of God, only so that they can do evil and lead others to do the same. God has a a particular problem with this kind of behavior. This is why he says in verse 19, Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. God has a particular hatred for the apostate who say, have the badge of God and say, I represent God and then lead people into hell. This is why the final plague, the plague of the hail, was exceedingly great. Now, we move on to the seventh plague here, that plague of the hail. And we notice some very interesting things here as we examine this, and we compare it with other passages in the scripture. And again, that's how we have God to bring light to us about these plagues. As we examine where in scripture do we see uh, these actually originate. And as we go back to Exodus and chapter 9, we see that the seventh plague to fall upon the Egyptians was the plague of hail. We have to go back to Exodus chapter 9, verses 13 through 35. And in verse 16 and 17 of Exodus 9, just before the plagues come, 
as Moses is talking to Pharaoh, God says something very interesting to Pharaoh through Moses. God says to Pharaoh that he raised him up so that he might show his power against Pharaoh and declare his name in all the earth. Now, when we read Ellen White, she also tells us that the plagues and judgments that fell upon Egypt were also judgments upon their false gods. One of the first plagues to fall was that of turning the river Nile into blood. Now, the Egyptians, they worshipped the god of the river Nile. This was their source of life. It was what made Egypt so prosperous because they had this huge river providing all this nutrients and they farmed all along the river there. And uh, it was very important to them. Another plague that fell upon Egypt was darkness. And this was, uh, this was hitting the god uh, uh, of the sun, the sun god which was another important God to the Egyptians. So when God caused darkness and, their, and the Egyptian gods could do nothing, they realized how futile their gods were, and, and on and on. So it was also a judgment against the gods of Egypt. And God is in essence saying that there is no other God besides me. There is no other God for you to worship. I am the only one. So God was proclaiming his name to all the earth. God also says back in Exodus chapter 9 that Pharaoh is exalting himself above God's people. Therefore, the plagues of hail would come. So the plague of hail in Revelation reminds everyone that God is all-powerful. The God of Moses is the only true God and that God will not tolerate his enemies to exalt themselves over his people for very long before he intercedes. And is it important to note that we also read in Exodus chapter 9 that after the plagues fail, fell on Egypt and Pharaoh pleaded with Moses, go, go plead to your God. Please tell him to take away uh, the hail. That Moses did so out of mercy. And after the, the hail stopped and things calmed down, the Bible says in Exodus that Pharaoh hardened his heart. You see, you would think that these terrible calamities that were coming might have caused him to reflect and think and say, wow, look at all of this, the, this majestic supernatural things that are happening. The God of Moses must be the true God. Who can do such things? I mean, who sees things like this every day? No one. This has to be of God. But there was no repentance from Pharaoh. And here in Revelation chapter 16, when the plagues fall, we see there is no repentance from the wicked. No, when the plagues fall, uh, that's it. The time of probation is over. And, and it's not a, a time for, for people to, to come to Christ. No, they must come to Christ. They must surrender. They must believe before that time comes. And the same is true for us today.
You see, the plagues, they reveal who is on God's side and who is not. Norman Gully has an interesting quotation here from his book, Systematic Theology, Volume 4. He says, Both saints and sinners are in the tribulation, but trials do not affect them the same way. This is because unbelievers are judged for their rebellion against God, while believers grow as they depend on Christ to endure the enemy. The tribulation is a time to reveal both sides of the controversy, showing what they are like during the final duress. Both sides will reflect their leaders. The wicked will be more and more like Satan, and the righteous, the saints, will be more and more like Jesus. Again, another theme we see here in the plagues is that they reveal who is on what side in the great controversy. And so all doubt is taken out of the minds of of people and of angels. Well, who is really with God and who is not with God? What, What is their character like? And it will reveal the character of the one whom they follow. This is one of the issues in the plagues. The assaults of Satan are fierce, says Ellen White, and determined. His delusions are terrible, but the Lord's eye is upon his people, and his ear listens to their cries. Their affliction is great. The flames of the furnace seem about to consume them, but the refiner will bring them forth like gold tried in the fire. God's love for his children during the period of their severest trial is as strong and tender as in the days of their sunniest prosperity. But it is needful for them to be placed in the furnace of fire. Their earthliness must be consumed, that the image of Christ may be perfectly reflected. The season of distress and anguish before us will require a faith that can endure weariness, delay, and hunger, a faith that will not faint, though severely tried. That's from The Great Controversy, page 621. I want to ask you today, are you going through a trial? Is there anybody here who's going through uncertainty? Is there anybody who is going through pressure, it seems like, from all sides? Well, this is a time that God wants to use to refine you. And all of us need that refining. Because there is coming upon this earth a final battle that will take place between Christ and Satan. It is the battle of the great cosmic controversy between the two. Each believer needs to identify the great struggle that is taking place for the people of this earth and their individual lives. Each of us must develop a sense of spiritual discernment about the events that are taking place in this world today. Do you understand what is happening in the world around you? Is there confusion or uncertainty or maybe even fear? I would say that the Bible has answers 
The Bible gives us hope. The Bible gives us understanding so that even in times like these, when the world is uncertain, when they are afraid of an invisible enemy, as many have called it, when they are uncertain about where their, their bread is going to come from, that God has answers in his word, that God will take care of those who trust in him. We know how the story ends with Jesus standing as the champion over every challenger, over every lie and over every trial. The question for us today, are we going to accept his invitation again to stand with him? Because we know that we're never out of the woods. We can have the greatest and and most moving testimony that could ever be told. But yesterday's experience, it only gives us encouragement and hope for today. We cannot continually rely on that and and become relaxed in our faith. We cannot become uh, um, eased in, in our spiritual experience. No, we have to continue forward every day, running the race with Jesus Christ. Some time ago, a friend uh, told me about a race that uh, is be that is run every year. It's called the Self Transcendence Race. It is the world's longest certified foot race. The multi-day race is hosted by the Sri Chomni Marathon Team, and is thirty-one hundred miles. That's 4,989 kilometers in length. Can you imagine? 3,100 miles. It takes place in Queens, New York from June to August each year. Runners run 5,649 laps of the one city block in Jamaica, Queens. The runners have to finish the race within 52 days in order to actually say they ran the race. The world record is held by a man from Finland who finished with a time of 40 days, 9 hours, 6 minutes and 21 seconds in July of 2015. He broke the previous record of 41 days, 8 hours, 16 minutes, and 29 seconds. Can you imagine that much running? Can you imagine what that will do to your body, to your mind, and to your spirit? Sri Chimnoy, the founder of the race, said that the self-transcendence race challenges runners to transcend their own previous capacity gain spiritual insights, and overcome the entire world's preconceived notions of possibilities. Wow. Sounds uh, like great achievements. It also sounds uh, somewhat spiritualistic, almost Eastern mysticism, if you will. But besides that that, uh, type of thing, and uh, we don't want to advocate anything like that, But the point is this, these people who run this race, 3,100 miles, they know that sure physical grit 
and mental endurance is not enough. They have to reach deep down inside something more to get them through 3,100 miles. Can you imagine? Can you imagine uh, such a, a grueling race? What the people must go through mentally, physically, and, and spiritually. And you know, the same is true for us because we're in a long race, a long marathon here. Christianity is not a sprint to the finish line. It's not running as quickly as you can to try to get to the end because we have to be on God's time. And we have to let God himself guide us through to the very end. You know, I, I imagine that the people who ran this race, they don't wake up one day and, and they decide to run 3,100 miles. No, they have to train. They're serious. They de- they're deeply committed to finishing well. And my question for us today, as we look at the plagues and we look at what's coming upon this earth, is this, how are you running your race today? You know, the best runners, they have good coaches. And the best coach in history is offering to get you through this long, difficult race. His name is Jesus. He knows how to finish well, and he'll teach you everything that he knows. Will you let him be your unrivaled guide and teacher? I pray that you will. The plagues are not a cause for fear. They're not a cause for us to be anxious. And as we read them, we can sometimes get so wrapped up in all of these different uh, signs and and these different catastrophes and, and what are they all about that we can miss that the plagues really have a purpose. They have a purpose. They judge it judges the wicked but it also refines and purifies the saints. It draws them closer to their Savior. And I hope that the little trials that we are going through now, some seem little and some seem big, that all of us are taking this opportunity to develop that deeper intimacy with our God. Because this is what's going to help us get through to the very end. And as we close our series on the seven last plagues, we see that behind all of of this noise and behind all of these plagues, the boils, uh, the water that's turned to blood, behind all of this, there's actually a loving God who's trying to bring an end to this great controversy. And I don't know about you, church, but I am so ready for that controversy to end. Whenever I turn on the news or whenever I go out and I see another sign on another door closed because of the virus, whenever I hear of people losing their jobs, they're uncertain about tomorrow. I'm ready for this controversy to end. And I hope and pray that all of us are recognizing at this time that God in his mercy, he's trying to wake up millions so that they will come onto his side and so that they can be his coach to get them through this long trial, this long journey that we all experience. 
And it's my hope and it's my prayer that you are running with Jesus in faith. And I'll close with these words from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. May God bless you and happy Sabbath.